I was a guy who would import a trunk full of shoes and I would drive around Oakland and I would pull up to the barbershop and I would sell shoes to people at the barbershop. So I always saw barbershops and salons as these distribution points. I always saw them as these community hubs where business and commerce could take place. And what I saw was that there were billions and billions of dollars being spent on the products in the African-American hair care space. And very little of that money would ever make it back into the community. And that's what I wanted to attack. Welcome to the very first episode of Access and Opportunities, Season 6. In this episode, we welcome venture capitalist Keisha Cash, who has spent nearly a decade focused on impact investing. Currently, Keisha serves as the founder and general partner of Impact America Fund, the largest black women-led impact venture capital firm in the U.S. and a fund that invests with a racial equity lens. We'll also be joined by Deshaun Amira, founder and CEO of Maven, the technology platform that not only provides high-quality beauty products, but that also empowers beauty professionals by enabling them to grow their business while providing their clients with exceptional customer support. Keisha and Impact America Fund first invested in Maven back in 2014, and since then, Maven has become the fund's largest investment. In this episode, Keisha and Deshaun share the importance of investing in the black small business community, the ways in which they've managed to build a healthy relationship as entrepreneur and investor, and the strategic decisions that guided them through the unexpected impacts of COVID-19. Come on and join me for the ride. So Keisha and Deshaun, thank you so much for joining me today. Let's jump right in and have this conversation about how the two of you met. Deshaun, why don't you start? So, and Keisha, you might have to help me out with some <laughs> of the particulars, but I think it was about 2014. We had just come out of our accelerator. We were in 500 startups. We had raised a little bit of money, seed money, about $800,000. And the business was starting to pick up some good traction. And I think I just got a ring out of the blue one day from someone who wanted to introduce me to Keisha and Keisha came by. And this is really early in our development as a company. She came by the office. We sat down, we talked for a couple of hours and she started to tell me about, you know, what she was embarking on, which at that time was to raise an impact fund. And she was really interested in the company. And just from there, we started to work and build together, which eventually grew into an investment relationship that now has spanned over five years. But somebody made the introduction for the two of you, right? It was about a relationship was the common point. Do you remember the specifics, Keisha? Yeah, it was actually at the time it was who became my anchor LP in Fund One. Someone from ah. that family office had attended the 500 Startups Demo Day and saw Deshaun Pitch. And they came back and said, we don't know anything about the hair business, but this founder seems amazing and you should check this out. And they knew that after my time working in investment banking in New York, I had spent some time in Los Angeles working with a hairstylist named Dr. Boogie. Yeah. Through that experience, learned a lot about hair extensions and actually had been to Shenzhen and Qingdao in China and 
spent some time at factories there. And we actually, through the work with him, created hair products that he was selling online that he wanted to customize these hair products for his celebrity clients. So I learned really from the ground up about this industry, the opportunities in this industry. So fast forward when I met Deshaun, and I think the introduction was actually 2013 to be um, exact. Oh, was it 13? It was 2013. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because yeah. I yeah. tracked you and basically stocked the company for about a year before I had money to actually oh. invest. <laughs> so, right. And we made that our uh, first investment in Q4 of 2014. So it came through our network. Somebody really impressed by Deshaun knew very little about the the market opportunity, you know, but trusted my skill set to evaluate that opportunity. And the reason why I wanted to start there is that, you know, we've done a couple of white papers that talk about the inequity of the distribution of capital to entrepreneurs of color and to women. And last summer, we did another white paper that focused just on VCs and why they don't make these investments. And obviously, part of the reason is that they don't necessarily have the network and many of them aren't willing to take the expansion risk that most VCs take into areas that they really don't know. And that's the area of markets serving demographic of color. So I wanted to sort of kind of backdoor, Keisha, get at the advice that you would have to a VC around how they could get exposure to investments like Deshaun. And relationships are obviously one of the key things that the VC community talks about in terms of pipeline and deal flow. But what would you say to them if they didn't have a relationship like the one that connected the two of you? And maybe the person that connected the two of you was not of color. And that would be interesting to note as well. No, they weren't. It was a white woman based in San Francisco. So, you know, what I appreciated about that and their interest in investing in Impact America Fund was that understanding that they did not have the cultural competence to assess a company like Maven. But instead of them walking away saying, you know, I don't know this company, I'm not familiar with this market space. What they said was, we don't know this company, but we're super impressed by this founder. We believe that he's figuring something out and he'll continue to figure something out because he had the best pitch out of his cohort. Let me find somebody that has more cultural competency and we know have industry experience relative to this potential investment. Let me find that person to do that diligence. So I think there's, you know, there's work obviously for investment firms to build out their team so they have that diversity in-house. But, you know, even without that, you can syndicate around and make sure you're including investors that have that unique skill set, as well as advisors and people who know. So there's no excuse for not doing the deal. You may have to do a little bit more legwork if you're not familiar with the market. But there's certainly people, you know, myself and many others that have the cultural competency to do the work. Excellent. And is there any magic to how you get your deal flow? Let's talk a little bit about your fund and what made you decide to put this fund together and talk about how you make sure that you get access to diverse, and I don't mean just diverse founders, but I mean in terms of the opportunity and the the market serve diverse opportunities as well. Yeah. I mean, part of it is, you know, I was fortunate prior to launching my uh, Impact America Fund One, I worked at a large, very large family office in New York. And they gave me the space to essentially develop a network of diverse investors, entrepreneurs. My mandate working at that family office was to identify diverse founders who were building companies that were not only profitable and potentially scalable, but also were reinvesting in the community. And so with that mandate, you know, I had a few years, thankfully, to develop a really broad and diverse network. And that includes 
you know, investors, but also folks on the policymaking side in academia, corporations. And, you know, as we're seeing now, the importance for all of these various stakeholders to work together, you know, that's how a company actually grows in a way for our mission that has, you know, impact on community. So through that time that I had at the family office, you know, I built an extremely diverse network. So we get deal flow from, I have my MBA from Columbia. Columbia may send me a list of um, startup companies or friends, you know, at some of the larger venture capital firms will send us deals that they think make sense for us. So we, you know, we're open for business to everyone and anyone that wants to show us, you know, a potential opportunity. And we built our systems to be able to manage Looking at all of those opportunities, we're only going to invest in a select few, but it's important that everybody has an opportunity to have their pitch reviewed. And as you were trying to build your fund, can you talk a little bit about what your fundraising process was like? Because we're going to get to that with Deshaun as well, because I want our listeners also to understand the difficulty or lack thereof of raising money if you are a person of color and or a woman. Yeah, I'm going to, because she said this before and she said it more recently, um, Monique Woodard, who is an African-American woman based in the Bay Area that I know was supportive of Maven in the very early days and continues to be, you know, a powerhouse. And she's an investor. And she said, for a Black woman raising a fund, it's like being naked and crawling through glass. And then the latest version I, I heard is with fire ants on you. Right? So, <laughs> so Monique's description, you know, I can attest to is quite accurate. And the worst part is in order to get to the other side, you keep crawling through glass with those fire ants on you. And, you know, and I did it because I'm so passionate about the work and the mission. But it's, you know, it certainly hasn't been easy. I think, you know, what's helped us, honestly, is, again, the opportunity I had to work with that large family office. So I kind of had three years to incubate the idea, build a network and test it out and prove Mm -hmm. it out on someone else's balance sheet. And so by the time I was ready to raise a fund, you know, I had in the Ah. first the first fund was small. The first fund was a 10 million dollar fund. So I had those networks and those contacts that were waiting for me to get to, you know, a fund in order to invest. And even with that, it was still like Monique described. Okay, I got I got it now. So let's switch to Deshaun. So tell us a little bit about how you created Maven. And I want to hear a little bit about your fundraising process before you met Keisha and after you met Keisha. Okay, so Maven is a digital salon platform that is both a marketplace and an e-commerce platform. And it's a custom-built technology business. And the whole purpose is to empower hair salons and hairstylists, primarily in the African-American community is where we've started, and help them build their businesses on top of this platform, both by helping them sell products and earn money from that and by earning new clients. So the impetus for starting that business was I had hairstylists in my family. I had spent two years living in China after college. I had got into importing products. I was a guy who would import a trunk full of shoes and I would drive around Oakland and I would pull up to the barbershop and I would sell shoes to people at the barbershop. So I always saw barbershops and salons as these distribution points. I always saw them as these community hubs where business and commerce could take place. Mm. So those two things came together. And what I saw was that there were billions and billions of dollars being spent on the products um, in the African-American hair care space. And very little of that money would ever make it back into the community. And that's what I wanted to attack. So 
the goal that we've always had was like transfer more money into the community and into these hair salons and these stylists. And we've been able to do that. And now with the marketplace, we're really connecting customers with stylists and driving them new business. And that that business is actually taking off and has already surpassed in size the core business of selling hair products. So that was my journey there. The fundraising process, it was a whole journey in and of itself. The way that I approached that was I had made up my mind before I started this business that I wanted to start a business that was going to have a scaled out impact on my community and on the world. And to do that, I was going to need to access capital. And I knew I wanted to do it on the internet. And so I sort of set my sights on Silicon Valley. But I approached it, I think, the same way that I approached like moving to China. Like I knew that that was a culture that was going to be completely foreign and I needed to learn how to speak the language, how to understand the unsaid and unwritten rules and codes of what was going on there and find the right allies and find the right people who can help me navigate and figure it out. And that's how I approached it. I think what I understood very early on was these investors, this is who I'm selling to. I'm trying to understand them and I'm trying to understand the person that I'm selling to, what drives them, What are the questions they're going to be asking for? Then I started putting a deck together and started going to these pitch events and participating in them. And I did great at the pitches and I would win pitch events. But the panelists would all then say, like, that was amazing. But I can't invest because I don't know anything about this market. Yeah. One of the critical things that I did that was a tipping point, I took three investors, I put them in my car and I drove them to West Oakland to a beauty supply store. And this is like deep West Oakland where they would never, they would never go there. (laughs) There would never be any reason for them to go there ever. Uh, And that's exactly how it was. Like I'm walking by, I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. Okay. And I took them into this beauty supply store and they had never seen anything like it in their life. I think until they saw it, they didn't even believe that this world existed. Yeah. And so I really focused on how do I viscerally close that gap for them Mm -hmm. to understand that there's a whole world here that they're not seeing. And then from there, I kind of started to figure out more and more of how to attract money. All the meanwhile, I'm still selling product and I'm still focused on making sure I'm moving the product. It was definitely a learning experience and it was there was a lot of hurdles to jump over. You know, one of the big things and I I don't want to drone on too long, but a lot of people would give me advice around fundraising that I needed to make it less black. I needed to not make it about the black community or serving black customers. Mm -hmm. I needed to broaden it and include everybody in it. I even had a a VC, and I won't say who it is, but a very, very large, prominent VC. I sat down with him and he asked me after I pitched, how much can you turn your black down? Like there was like a knob. (laughs) And I think he, you know, he thought he was like helping me by saying this. But I think there was this uh, intense pressure to 
conform and not represent what I came to represent. And fortunately, I got some other good advice from someone else, actually, Charles Hudson, who was at uh, Soft Tech at the time. And he pulled me aside and said, yo, keep your thing black, like keep it focused on what you came to do. And that was great advice. And the more I really just stuck to what I came for and what my story was and why I was the right person for this business, for these customers and for my community, the more confident I was in everything I said and the more belief I built around me from everybody else, which led to more success. There are a lot of playbook points that you both gave, but let me now ask the question, and this is an important point, Deshaun, for our listeners, is that now you're at the point where you can be a discerning or discriminating company with respect to whose capital you take. And playbook point, not all capital is created equal. So what was it about Keisha that made you say, absolutely, I want her in my cap table? And how does that relate now to whose money you put in your cap table as the founder? Yeah. And I think that it sort of alludes back to that lesson that I learned while I was raising. You know, at the end of the day, my truth in why I do this and what I'm trying to do Everything is built around that truth. And what I'm looking for are people who fully subscribe to my truth. Not their agenda, not their vision, but the vision that I've painted. And what I've found is that your job is to sort through and eliminate as many people as you can to find those type of people to come on board with you because those are the type of people who are fully subscribed to your vision and energized by your vision, who are going to be there when you need them. And that began to be my filtration system. And it was less about who was the big name and all of this. But what I really wanted to know is how passionate are you about the picture that I'm painting right now? Because that was going to tell me whether or not you were going to be there when I needed you. And Keisha, just from day one, was all about that just drew us closer and closer together and built a trust there that I knew would be a long lasting um, and sustainable trust and relationship that I could count and I could depend on. And so I, I think that's really, really important when you when you're sorting through and when you do have the ability to be discerning in who you take in, they need to be lifers like your job is to find lifers. Yes. Don't go for the sometimes people and the sometimes money because they will disappear on you. Yeah. You need allies and you need friends who are going to step up in a long-term journey. And you need real strategic advisors, which is a nice segue into the period that we're in now. Nobody could have called a thing called COVID-19. So I want to hear first from Keisha, you know, what was the first thing you thought when you realized that this was a real thing and it probably wasn't going to be 30 days long? It was going to be longer than that and impact more than what people thought in March. How did you think about it as an investor is question number one. So first, what did you think? Are you making new investments? What are you saying to your portfolio companies? Yeah, 
um, my job becomes easy when you're invested in a founder like Deshaun. That being said, when COVID hit, <laughs> because, I, because I am so, uh, I'm such a Maven fan. Um, as a small fund, we have a lot of chips on the table in Maven. And so, you know, I wrote mm-hmm. a blog piece about Deshaun and his leadership through Maven. But I also noted, which was very real, you know, I was going to do whatever I needed to do during COVID to make sure Maven was okay because... You know, I got, we have a large stake as a small fund. We're over-invested. Our fund one has more than, you know, kind of the rule of thumb to have in any one company. And our fund two is also invested. So we're concentrated in Maven right now. And the reality, when folks talk about concentration risk, as we were thinking about, you know, how we're going to approach our portfolio, you know, Maven was at the top of the list from a priority standpoint because of the capital that we have invested, as well as because of the hit that Maven took during the salon closures. That being said, if you you read the blog post through that period, and Deshaun and I were talking on a daily, sometimes twice a day basis, as he was working through a strategy, you know, through that period, I think myself and I know, you know, the rest of my team, it confirmed why we have our chips on the table in Maven, because Deshaun's action and the way that he navigated and made the strategic decisions about Maven's position during this time was was phenomenal and an example of really great leadership. And then our other companies, one thing interesting thing that we saw, Carla, is that you know we've been very focused on investing in businesses that we believe are essential to the well-being of low and moderate income communities. So you enter a time like COVID, and really the businesses that continue to operate were essential services. And so in some cases, mm-hmm. many cases in our portfolio, we saw an uptick in revenue. This week, one of our portfolio companies, Care Academy, led by two women of color during COVID, raised a $9.5 million Series A round Wow! because the company's focused on home care and was able to activate and go into a really interesting strategic mode during COVID, was doing well pre-COVID, but we saw the, the importance of the company during COVID and we were leading the round uh, going into COVID and were able to syndicate a great group of investors. And so, you know, we saw our strategy play out in an interesting way in that many of our companies saw upticks. And then, you know, where we had our, the most of our chips, we have a, a, a leader at the table that eased our worries and our LPs worries around the positioning of the company, given their, their healthy cash position and, and the leadership team. From an investment standpoint going forward, mm-hmm. we're slowing down a little bit. We've made a couple of earlier stage investments and we have a lot of dry powder we you know it's a, a fresh fund so we want to be intentional about investing in opportunities that will support the rebuilding that will will need to happen for black and brown communities ah. was there anything you said to the other CEOs in your portfolio about how they should think about managing cash during this period I heard a lot of your contemporaries, your VC contemporaries, say that they didn't think anybody would be able to raise any cash before the first quarter of 21. And they told people to start thinking about managing to cash till January. Yeah, for us, it was a yes and of, you know, how much cash do you have on hand? Mm -hmm. The main thing was we got on the phone with every portfolio company and said, well, strategically, how do you plan to stay alive? (laughs) Some of them strategically had more revenue. Others needed to make cuts. And then some, thankfully, you know, had enough cash on hand. Many investors are saying this is a tough time to raise. Um, You know, I kind of tend to bet that it may be harder to raise come fall or September, October. We just don't know what the world's going to look like. And 
I do know people are still writing checks and there seems to be, right, given the moments that we're in, an increased interest for capital to get to diverse founders. So we are leaning into that moment and making sure that our companies, you know, have the cash that they need. Agreed. Okay, Deshaun, COVID is here. Salons mm-hmm. are closed. How did you think about it? What did you say to your salon owners? What did you say to your team? How did you think about it? I would start by saying that I was ready before COVID hit for something crazy to happen. Because, you know, last year there was all this chatter about the bubble popping. And it was like economic chatter around there could be a bubble pop or whatever. And I typically have always raised money when I didn't need it as opposed to wait until I only have six months left and go out and get money. Good playbook point. Right. And so last year in December, we raised quite a bit of money. And so when COVID hit, we actually had a very substantial cash position. Now, our revenue took a big hit, especially in the first three weeks of COVID, because every salon in the country closed. And so because we were in an advantageous cash position, I could take a more aggressive standpoint and say, okay, let's not immediately cut off all of our arms because if we invest right now into more product and more things to sell, then on the other side of this thing, we could be clear Mm -hmm. winner take all. But at the same time, we didn't know when things would come back. And so we time boxed a strategy where we decided not to make big cuts to see where the chips were going to fall, to see what was going to happen. Because there's a tremendous amount of just chaos and uncertainty and things could just go any sort of direction. And so we were fortunate to have that cash to be able to do that. And so... We focused inward on operational efficiencies, getting our margins up higher. We killed our marketing spend and we did things to conserve cash, but without crippling the business. Maven as a platform, it doesn't just sell services. We also sell products. And then what we actually started to see was this slow uptick in the shift of what people were buying to just pure product that they didn't have to go into the salon to go put on. And we were able to see a a even bigger uptick kind of week over week over week. At the consumer level, they were buying more products because you're B2B with the stylist. So now your B2C business was taking off. Well, we were always a B2B2C business, right? Where the stylist had a website, but they didn't buy the product from us. They just referred customers and they would buy. But we had already been direct to consumer for a very long time, selling products and selling services. And so the, sh- the, the mix, the product mix just shifted to be less services based to pure product based and products that didn't mm-hmm. require services like wigs and clip-ins, which those products actually happen to have a really big margin. And so I think a combination of that and a lot of people who might have normally been buying outside of the beauty supply store – I think, came online and now started engaging in more e-commerce. And so we benefited, I think, from that as well. So the scenarios that we built in in terms of demand and revenue, we blew past those. And because we also focused on our margins 
And we increased our margin by like 30, 40% in the past three months. From that position, actually, I really wanted to make sure our stylist community was okay because they're the ones who don't have cash in the bank to just ride out Mm -hmm. three, four months without Mm -hmm. working. And we actually launched a campaign and we raised $1.3 million. Um, We had contributors like Jack Dorsey from Twitter, Ben and Felicia Horowitz, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Foundation, Pritzker family, and the community itself all pulled together. We raised $1.3 million and we distributed $500 stylist relief payments to over 2,600 hairstylists that were in our network via our own payment platform. Mm -hmm. it means something. And a lot of them actually had a very difficult time accessing any of the federal money. Mm -hmm. All of them are 1099 contractors. And the hoops that they had to jump through to try to get any of the PPP money made it virtually impossible. So, you know, we were only able to do that just because we've had such a track record of executing our mission that we had a lot of credibility out there from large donors and people who know what we do, who stepped up during that time. It's been a, it's been a crazy few months. I'll tell you that. Well, I applaud your ingenuity and your innovation, and it is going to serve you well, as I'm sure you already know, when we get back to an environment where people can actually visit a salon. Um, And it's obviously going to be a boom also for your business if we are in an environment where stylists more and more have to go to people's homes. So no matter how you cut it, this will serve you quite well. So we're at that part of Access and Opportunity called the Lightning Round, where we give our listeners an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better and a little more personally. So I'm going to just give you some quick sentences or some quick questions, and you guys just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. And I'm going to start with you, Deshaun. All right? Okay. So reading a book or binge-watching television? I wish I could say reading a book, but I typically just binge. I binge. When I get some downtime, I'm I'm trying to zone out, you know. So I hear that. Binging. Winter or summer? Oh, summer all day. Coffee or tea? <sighs> Coffee, espresso. Let me be specific. Let me be specific. <laughs> I do a double. I do a double espresso every morning. I am with yeah. you. I got one on you. How about a double espresso poured into a cup of coffee? Ooh. <laughs> there we go. Okay. okay. All right. Okay. Yeah, that is next level. Trust right. me. Okay. Email or phone call? Text message. <laughs> oh, that wasn't okay. An okay. Alrighty. One word to describe your legacy. Hmm. One word to describe my legacy. I would like it to be service. Service. Okay. All right, Miss Keisha, here we go. Reading a book or binge watching television? Binge watching. Winter or summer? Summer. That's easy. Coffee or tea? Black tea. Unsweetened black tea. (laughs) You can actually taste the tea, Deshaun. I don't know about that. I need some sugar. You got to put some sugar or something and some honey, something. I hear that. Email or phone call, Keisha? These days, phone call. Let's talk to each other. All righty. One word to describe your legacy. Transformation. 
Excellent, excellent. All righty, well, thank you guys and continue to stay safe and stay well. And as I said, Deshaun, don't tarry. Go for it, brother. Okay, I hear you. Let's go. Okay, we all right. All right, Miss Keisha, all the best. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of Access and Opportunity. In our next episode, we'll be joined by investor Jesse Draper, founding partner of Halogen Ventures and entrepreneur Esther Crawford, co-founder and CEO of Squad. And by the way, we'd love to hear from you. So remember to share your thoughts and feedback with us at carlapod at morganstanley.com. See you then.